listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs blog about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm not Niels. And I am Niels. In episode 8, we'll be dropping by a dromaeosaur sanctuary for our paleoartist interview as Mark and I speak to Jed Taylor, a self-confessed dromaeosaur obsessive, fellow Tetrapod Zoology Conference stalwart, and very dear friend to us here at Chasmosaurs. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is Dale Russell's An Odyssey in Time, The Dinosaurs of North America, illustrated by Edna Kish and published by University of Toronto Press in 1989. But first, we start things off as ever with some news from the paleosphere and uh, pay a short visit thereby to a pterosaur nursery. Uh, Niels, I believe you have something for us on this front, courtesy of some very familiar names indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, pterosaurs. Uh, the P is not silent, so uh, we have to normalize saying the P in front. Um, what? <laughs> Why? Yes, it's true. No, uh, no, no, it is. No, it's, it's Greek, isn't it? Oh, like, 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 like how we have to say triceratops. <laughs> no, we were told, like, it's you like know. Archaeopteryx. It's the same P as in Archaeopteryx. Archaeopteryx and triceratops yes. and rhinocaros. Anyway, you carry on. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, pterosaurs. Uh, no. Pterosaurs. I'm going to keep saying it. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, pterosaurs. Baby pterosaurs, to be precise. Um there's been, uh, for a few years, a couple of uh, conflicting hypotheses to what baby pterosaurs were doing. Because um, I think we all have this image uh, in popular culture of, of Pteranodon uh, nesting on a cliff, uh, feeding its young like a bird. Um, so the, basically the two conflicting uh, hypotheses are whether or not these um, baby pterosaurs uh, could fly or not. And if they could... Um, fly out into the wilderness immediately, or if they would stay in the nest and be fed by their parents. And uh, yeah, there's been some back and forth. And now uh, there's a new paper out, casting some light, ca getting some data on this uh, issue. It's called Powered Flight in Hatchling Pterosaurs, Evidence from Wing Form and Bone Strength by our good friends Darren Nash, Mark Witten, and Liz Martin-Silverstone. Um, this is uh, an open access paper in Scientific Reports, Basically, the argument being made is that, at least for the data that we used, the uh, researchers found that pterosaur babies, uh, flaplings, if you will, are indeed quite capable of flying. At least uh, all signs seem to point that way. Uh, the methods they used were to, on the one hand, basically divide the, um, the size of the wings, right? Like the, the, the gliding uh, surface area to the weight of the animal. And the other thing was to test the strength of the uh, humerus, that would be the uh, upper arm. You know, on the gliding front, pterosaur babies, they basically perform about as well as any gliding animal and even better, if anything. Wow. Yeah, and it turns out that their humerus is strong enough to uh, suggest that at least they probably weren't flightless. The species they uh, did this for was one called pterodaustro. This is one you might know. It happens to be my favorite pterosaur. Um, ha, you really said it normally weird. then, didn't you? Yes, I was. I, was, no, I, was, I to No, no, no. I, I, I'm going to edit that. Were out. you just waiting <laughs> to say that, Mark? <laughs> yes, I was waiting for it to slip up and actually pronounce it like a normal person. No, but I, I, but I pronounce it cool whip. Cool whip. Oh, you got it. Cool whip. Cool whip. I'm going. I'm going in jail. You, you finish the podcast. Okay. 
Welcome to Love and Simon Caspersor's podcast, not featuring Niels anymore. <laughs> do, 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 Hooray! Do. Nobody has to listen to my uh, pterosaurs. Dodgy English anymore. Let's see. Where, where, where was I? <laughs> okay. Pterodaustro. So one of the species they um, they did it on was uh, Pterodaustro. That happens to be my favorite uh, pterosaur. Yeah, it is, it's true. <laughs> is Pterodaustro the one with the elongated teeth? It's um, the one with the really intense underbite with these sort of baleen-like structures. It's, uh, yes. Flamingodactyl. <laughs> yeah, it's been compared to a flamingo, but uh, also a bit like a baleen whale. Um, mid-sized, that is, um, a wingspan of about two and a half meters, um, well represented in the fossil record. And they, they actually have a pretty decent growth series on this animal. Um, and that's one of the species they did it on. Um, more controversially, they did it on an animal usually called Nemecolopterus, Nemecolopterus, which is often understood to be a tiny species, but uh, Neish et al. interpret it as a very young um, ashdarkid called uh, Synopterus. They found, yeah, at least there is no reason to think that um, baby pterosaurs were flightless. Um, and in fact, on the contrary, it turns out these would be quite capable of flight. Now, um, what could that mean? It could mean a, a whole bunch of things. It could mean that um, pterosaurs are, as they call it, precocial, which means that the baby animals uh, soon after hatching would be quite independent and uh, able to go their own way without much in the way of parental care. Then again, it could mean something entirely different. There is also sort of tentatively the hypothesis that uh, these pterosaurs had something similar going on to, uh, to many dinosaurs in that the babies are kind of filling different niches than the adults. Obviously, this has been a hypothesis put forward um, by some of them for a while, but it's good to see it in a nice formal in paper form, you know, fully published and yeah. with all the supporting arguments and data and all, all open access so it's all good yes, indeed. it's open access you can go read it for yourself yes yeah, so if you're if you're interested in pterosaurs and particularly the lifestyles of pterosaurs and the ontogeny of pterosaurs we should definitely check out this paper on pterosaurs <laughs> um you get the point yes thank you the p is not silent. thank you niels <laughs> thank you so much niels even if it is how the old joke goes all right, uh, Mark, on a not unrelated subject, uh, you have something else uh, connected to flight, I believe. Sort of. Well, yeah, well, yes, it is in a sense, because obviously it relates to the evolution of um, a bone that's regarded nowadays as being very peculiar to birds. Um, it is unusual pectoral apparatus in a predatory dinosaur resolves avian wishbone homology, also published in scientific reports, which is some sort of offshoot of nature, isn't it? It's like open access nature, nature that the normal people can afford. Um, and it is by Andrea Cower, old friend, um, the Italian fan of the Jurassic World films, et al. And yeah, it's related to his baby, um, uh, Halskaraptor, which I can't pronounce properly either. Halskaraptor. The P is silent. <sighs> Go away. So a very unusual <laughs> theropod, of course, named after the uh, Polish paleontologist. It's, it's a Paravian, sort of closely related to Dromaeosaurs, Troodons. It has a long neck and it's been... Um, has and quite specialised forelimbs that appear to be, some people have hypothesised, adapted for uh, swimming or paddling. So actually the forelimbs are adapted for swimming or paddling rather than the hind limbs. So it's, it's very unusual. And um, they've found some extra bones. And um, one of those bones was the furcular. But the furcular is rather unusual. As I mean, so much of this dinosaur is unusual, but the furcular is unusual too in the way it contacts the um, sternal plates. So there was um, 
I'm apologies if I'm, I'm mangling lots of terms here, and you know I'm going to make paleontologists wince, but um, <laughs> I'm trying to avoid getting into like to be technical. But basically, it's um, as we all know, it's long we there have, well there've been competing hypotheses about the evolution of the furcular and what the furcular represents, and one of the most dominant, what well, even the most dominant one has been that the furcular represents fused clavicles, so the collarbones uh, fused into a single bone. Um, an alternate hypothesis has been that actually it represents the interclavicle, which is a bone present in modern day reptiles like lizards, uh, not crocodiles though, because uh, they have a very specialized, uh, weird morphology. <laughs> but it's there in lizards, it's there in um, sort of the ancestors, sort of the common ancestor. Another hypothesis was it was actually some kind of combination of all of those elements, so the, the clavicles and the interclavicle. But generally, it tended to be people said, oh, well, it's the fused clavicles. Um, of course, one of the arguments towards the back in the day for dinosaurs not being birds, or no, through the reverse, one of the arguments back in the day for birds not being <laughs> dinosaurs, rather, was um, that dinosaurs did not have collarbones. They had no clavicles. Birds did have clavicles because they had the furcular, which were fused clavicles. Um, however, what Cow et al. argue in this paper is that, um, on the contrary, the furcular is not Furcular does not represent fused clavicles at all. It's not uh, that's not where the homology lies. Instead, the furcular is a highly modified interclavicle, um, and therefore, yeah, theropods generally do not have clavicles. They have a very modified interclavicle, and um, they cover the how you can see uh, a related sort of um, setup, if you like, in the forelimbs of sauropods as well, which cements their relationship to. Um, theropods in a sense so that's that's kind of interesting on a going off on a wild tangent okay. uh, but, um, I, I mean the, the main argument with the uh, houseraptor is that the interclavicle meets the sonal plates and and it is clear from the um from the sternum from, from the sternal plates that there is a groove there where it actually attaches it's not the case of it was it's been pushed down there or crushed it's not a, a taphonomic thing um, they, they've actually analysed it and right. determined that it's um, that is how it would have been in life. It would have contacted the sonal plates, and that uh, provides the the key evidence that it is the interclavicle rather than the clavicles, which wouldn't have basically gone anywhere near there. And it does make sense in many ways. I mean, it's basically evolved into this Y-shaped bone. It kind of became a bit more flimsy in the um, earlier theropods. But then, as um, we get nearer to avians, the um, the limbs are doing something else, and the uh, interclavicle expands uh, so we get this large y-shaped interclavicle they do note that the um it's very different in Hauskaraptor to uh, dromaeosaurs the the way in fact the whole setup of the forelimbs is, is quite different um and that Hauskaraptor which i can't pronounce um is rather actually closer to birds in many respects uh, but wow. yeah it, it's interesting because it does i mean obviously they're very bold in the title of their paper but it does appear to provide more evidence um in their opinion, it resolves uh, the, the the argument of where exactly the furcular came from, and therefore it is just yet another line of evidence that birds are modern-day theropod dinosaurs. They simply have an interclavicle um, that has been that's not only there in theropods, but a similar structure is actually present in sauropods, wow. at least some of the the earlier ones. Okay, that's interesting. I was going to say I apologize, I've probably mangled it, so um, my apologies to the authors. Uh, please, please go read the paper because it's uh, it's open access, and so you know you don't have to rely on my horrible mangled interpretation. Just go and read it because it's free. Free, yes. Download it. It's got nice Yay. pictures as well. <laughs> we like free <laughs> things. 
Well, in, in light of the two foregoing items, my news almost feels uh, less exciting by contrast, but no oh, prizes. Don't say that. Hadrosaurs are cool. Everybody <laughs> loves hadrosaurs. Well, Ooh. as you say, Niels, no prizes, whatever, for guessing what my subject is. Uh, a possible new species of advanced hadrosauroidea has been discovered on the west coast of Nagasaki and at an estimated nine meters is thought to be one of the largest ornithopods from Japan. Uh, the fossil, according to an article by Koichi Anzai in the Asahi Shimbun News site, uh, was first discovered in May 2016 in the 81 million year old Mitsusiso stratum on the beaches of Nagasaki. The, the great caveat here being, though, that although it is an exquisitely preserved fossil, it consists of one single left shoulder blade. That's it. That's all we have. Right. <laughs> the excitement of its being a possible new species is tempered, therefore, by having precious little with which to even begin reconstructing what it may have looked like. But nevertheless, this does add another significant element to our understanding of the region's ecology, which so far includes a large tyrannosaur and other smaller theropods. And that, my friends, is all I have. <laughs> and because that was a comparatively <laughs> short report, I wonder if I may add a footnote, actually, to our news items this month. I say a footnote because although there is no form of publication just yet, it's been causing quite a stir among paleophiles. Yeah, go on. Uh, in the mysterious ways of the Twitter gods, a photograph of a yet undescribed specimen of Tian Yulong has surfaced earlier this month and has been doing the social media rounds. Uh, the fossil in question preserves an outline of the integument and a very long tail comprising some two-thirds of the animal's total length. I described it as looking something like a Saurian marmoset. It uh, also put me in mind of the comparable tail length of Lielinosaura and perhaps suggests that fuzzy little ornithischians with long, long tails were not so unusual after all. So uh, in any case, I think this is a sign for us to watch this space for the paper in the hopefully not too distant future. So come back in 2030, um, when it will be published in Nature. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. All right then. Uh, so on to our Vintage Dinosaur Art book. Vintage Dinosaur Art. So Dale Russell's An Odyssey in Time, The Dinosaurs of North America, illustrated by Eleanor Kish. Um, Niels. I recall your saying that you weren't altogether persuaded by the work of Eleanor Kish and would like to hear a case for her, a challenge, by the way, which I firmly accept. But perhaps you would like to open the discussion. I mean, let's let's start with the obvious. Eleanor Kish, really infamous for making their dinosaurs really skinny, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Apparently, with a, with a yeah, I, I know that it was for this book especially and just for the advice that she was getting. Yeah, yeah particularly the work, her work prior to the 1990s, basically. And because allegedly it was to do with the, um, yeah, the direction she was given when um, approaching her reconstructions. Uh, yes, uh, and and I do understand all that. Uh, nevertheless, uh, here we are. I'm looking at all these uh, all these scans you sent me, especially um, of the sauropods and the hadrosaurs, and thinking, my golly, that can't be healthy, can it? I mean, no, I, no. <laughs> the, the first time I set eyes on these things, and of course, the um, I remember at the all yesterday's launch event back in 2012 um darren used the ellie kish apatosaurs as basically the ultimate demonstration of shrink wrapping which they basically are i mean 
You know, yeah. you can say, oh, Greg Paul shows some fenestrae here and there. It's got nothing on these um, apatosaurs that look basically like zombies. Um, so, yes, that it is that is a shame because, as I said, it is it, the frustrating thing about it is that it is supposedly because of the directional advice she was getting at the time. Uh, you can see in her later work that um, it's less shrink-wrapped. But at this time, she was apparently receiving this advice that she should make everything ridiculously skinny, like a heroin chic kind of uh, skinny for some reason. Um, which Heroin chic wasn't even in you, yet. Yeah. So <laughs> why though? And it, it is kind of a shame. It's kind of frustrating because this work is otherwise so fantastic. Um, exactly. In so many ways. So. It's, it's so absolutely beautiful to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That I, I just wish that there was a bit more flesh on the bones. Um, so, but Otherwise, compositionally, uh, stylistically, or artistically, it is. I mean, these are works of art for art's sake, uh, first and foremost. Even more than they are, they um, are. reconstructions of prehistoric animals. Um, so, and that's highly commendable. <laughs> so, yeah, I I would agree um, with all of that. I was just going to supplement what you said, Mark, that it, it's undeniable that uh, the, some extreme shrink wrapping is going on in many of Ellie's dinosaurs. But, but I agree um, uh, entirely with, with everything else you say about them being uh, pieces of art. Um, and even if we, in a, in a sense, I almost think that we can look at um, the dinosaurs here almost as a parallel universe creatures, if you like, um, in, in a world in which these are perfectly normal for them, simply because the way that they have been rendered um, as paintings, as works of art, in all other respects, are almost uh, virtually faultless to my eyes. And yeah, quite apart from that, just the realisation of the world in which they live, um, all of them meticulously mm. thought out, right down to the, the foliage, um, the landscapes, I mean, um, and I said compositionally too, they're fantastic. These aren't just um, spotter's guide type illustrations of prehistoric animals just thumped into a landscape. There's an immense amount of thought. I mean, you could you could compare it with the work to the work of um, Doug Henderson. The amount of detail and attention that's gone into the landscapes and the surrounding foliage, um, the compositions, and just the absolute just how absolutely gorgeous they are. Just, we just look at the weather in these, in these paintings, really, <laughs> yeah, the sunsets really and the clouds, yes. and the moon. Exactly. They're, they're fantastic. One, one of my favorite works of hers, which I probably shouldn't mention uh, simply because uh, it doesn't appear in this book, but uh, you hardly, uh, you can almost hardly see the, the dinosaur at all. And I believe if I recall correctly, it was a pachycephalosaur and it's just hiding um, under immense foliage in the rain. And the it is in here. The ad, it is in here. Yeah, it's. Uh, do you mean the Stegosaurus? It's um, it's in here. There we are. That's it's. The I think though, it's it's in the end papers. Or no, the front frontispiece is actually the Stegosaurus. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, right. and it's it's a very small part of the scene. Again, a bit a lot, a lot like a Doug Henderson mm. piece. It's a very small part of the scene, just sitting there at the bottom with all this, just completely surrounded by this forest that looks fantastic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the animal is alarmingly thin, <laughs> but. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's absolutely stunning, um, and and the use of um, the careful use of camouflage and patterning on the animals as well, the sort of the cryptic camouflage. She was almost she was a real uh, pioneer of that in many ways, and and often copied. I mean, um, there was a group of Carithosaurus 
that I remember being copied several times, um, occasionally made into Hypacrosaurus in different people's art. <laughs> I know which one you mean. That's that's a really gorgeous one. The 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 Corythosaurus bathing with the sunsets and yeah. uh, and the the water and the trees. I mean, I I don't disagree with you that uh, the landscapes and the com- compositions and the colors are just gorgeous. Little soft shell turtle sitting on the on the tree trunk there. Also, I think the the dinosaurs in this one aren't too bad. I mean. I suppose they're not when compared with things like the uh, the Myasaura, which actually is on the um, makes it onto the cover, at least the edition I have. Um, the the Myasaura with the hatchlings, and yeah, it does have this incredibly, but basically like, um, well, there's no there's no better word than shrink wrap, really, is there? It's just like cling film over the top of the, <laughs> the bones, um, yeah. and you can even even seem to be able to see right through the nostril. Um, which is reminiscent of some modern birds, like which for this theme with its giant honking fleshy nose does not seem right at all. So yeah, it does. It does. Some of these do look properly bizarre now, um, and maybe even at the time. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's hard to know how beautiful they are. And, and things like the Dryptosaurs as well. Um, that's what I mean. They're, they're there. There are two of them in sun in a sunset scene in like a swamp, and um, they look alarming. To be honest, they, they, they're just so incredibly thin like disturbingly thin wiry they, they don't they, they look like kind of demons they should be um dancing on a mountaintop in fantasia but, um <laughs> still that it's such a beautiful painting i mean some i think some of the older ones in here if anything um aims it off a bit better there's seen with some a couple of triceratops which i think is one of the older pieces to appear in here and the um the, the overly splayed limbs of the Triceratops age it somewhat, but um, they, they're not so skinny, so it's not quite so uh, jarring to look at. And you can still appreciate mm. the um, the composition in the background and the, and the amount of attention yes. to detail in the trees. Um, the one that the individual that's walking out of the water and the water's uh, dripping off of it, the, with the ripples, it's <laughs> just all that uh, fantastic attention to detail. All of this attention to uh, placing the animals in the landscapes, um, just in spite of all their strangeness, just make the pictures convincing to me. I mean, it's why I suggested earlier that you could almost regard them as as alternative universe uh, creatures instead, even if you can't be convinced by them as dinosaurs, just because they live in spite of all their strangeness, in spite of their peculiar, uh, extremely sharply shrink-wrapped uh, appearance. You may have noticed I'm very fond of Eleanor Kish's work. <laughs> well, that's too right. I mean, yeah, and, and that's absolutely correct. And I think you, it's a similar situation to um, stuff from, say, the Normanpedia, where we know now how wrong it looks and how weird and like the animals are po- like their the anatomy is incorrect and their skin is incorrect, and yet still, because of the skill of the artist, we are absolutely convinced by these things as living beings. Um, and here, mm. perhaps even more so, because of the um, that, that obviously the Normanpedia is meant to be more of a spotter's guide type thing, whereas this is presenting them in a more artistic light and putting them more into their natural environments. I mean, they're not just like a seri- it's not like an identity parade of different animals from across time lined up together in, in you know in a single shot. It's um, yeah. it's animals that live together. Uh, it's a more fleshed out ecosystem. You have pterosaurs and, as Neil's mentioned, the turtles and uh, various other animals just you know hanging around. Um, one thing I wanted yeah. to talk about was how a number of these were based on uh, 3D models that she made. 
So one that springs to mind in particular is the T-Rex, T-Rex attacking an Amontosaurus. Ah, yeah. And um, ah, yes. I know that one was definitely based on, I've seen photos of the model that was based on, um, and that helped her re-nail the perspective and the proportions, um, which again, just helps towards making them look convincing, even if they are alarmingly shrink-wrapped. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> T-Rex pubic bones sort of jutting out, like they, you know, they're going to take your eye out. Um, <laughs> disconcerting, but at the same time, it's it does nail the very tricky perspective on on the animal, you know, on, on its own terms of being a bit too skinny. But uh, it still it still gets that right, and it it looks three dimensional. It looks convincing. Um, again, great great use of um, composition. Um, have you noticed the very uh, 1980s um, Ash Darkid pterosaur flying overhead? I, I don't know if it made it into my my crop version that I sent you. Scan. Yes, I you think did. it did because it's, it's a single yes, page. It does. Yeah, 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 yeah. It does. Good. Okay, that's good. So you can see that thing up there. It's, it's like it looks like those very early restorations of Quetzalcoatlus because it's like uh, <laughs> tiny head and long legs. <laughs> it's uh, on your Quetzalcoatlus. Yeah, it has kind the Caselli head. Yeah, it has a kind of um, yeah, a bit Caselli-esque uh, anatomy. Of course, Caselli didn't really have anything to base it on, so we have to mention that whenever we mention this. Like, we're not bashing him. He, he had. No, he was just told no. it's a big pterosaur. Go and paint that. It was like okay. <laughs> Giovanni, um, if you're listening, we're big fans. Yes, we are. Well, I think we made we that clear before in our previous episode. Yeah. Um, but, but, but other favourites in here, we mentioned the, the T-Rex and the uh, Carithosaurus. Um, the Sauropelta on a beach, anyone? That's a nice one. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah that's, that's a nice beach. one. Yeah. Beach I think scene. this one's been copied quite a few times too. Yes. It has. Obviously, the animals have been modified a bit, but... Uh, it's also noticeably less shrink-wrapped, actually, than, than a great many of the others. Yes, that is very true. I guess it's hard to make an ankylosaur like that, that shrink-wrapped, just because it's so flat and wide. And, like, <laughs> That's just, true. Like, tanks. Yes. Um, so you, it's hard to make them... I mean, it still looks rather skinny. Um, you can see, the uh, again, the pubic bone sticking out, but it's uh, and the legs look a bit skinny, but... Yeah, I guess it, I guess it is hard to make an ankylosaur look that skinny because um, they are just so wide. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it doesn't look as intensely unwholesome as uh, the Mayasaur, for instance. No, no, that's probably one <laughs> no, of the not quite worst for that. To be honest, and that that and the apatosaurs. I mean, can can we talk about the apatosaurs as well? Because they are well, we as have I said, to at some point. Yes, they were given by Darren at the all yesterday's um, talk as being the like most egregious example of basically of street rapping in paleo art. Um, I don't want to put words in Darren's mouth, but that was the impression that I got. <laughs> I was basically like, here's a really extreme demonstration of this. Um, with the caveat that she was getting some slightly strange advice. But yes, because we are used to seeing sauropods as being quite tubby, which they probably kind of were being herbivorous and uh, quite massive, especially a patasaurus very massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, one thing this does show, this reconstruction does show, is the uh, how strange the neck it's the was. The neck, isn't it? And yeah. that's just because it is yeah. so uh, far too skinny. But we we can at least see those vertebrae and the peculiar shape of them simply because they're so exposed, um, and, yeah. and the kind of bifurcation of them as well along along the uh, along the top. So, um, yeah, in a sense, it does show us some aspects of this animal that we weren't seeing in other reconstructions from the time that tended to make it more of a basically fat diplodocus um they just gave it a standard but basically diplodocus neck but then with a really fat body um which is wrong 
that wasn't what it was like at all. Uh, it was it was very unique and very different to Diplodocus in, in that strange neck morphology. Um, and this shows that off. And quite apart from that, it's just a fantastic scene. I mean, look at look at the moon and the clouds and the moon the moonlight on the clouds above that. I could just crop that it's bit out and gorgeous. Like, that's yeah. I mean, um, I, I don't even need the dinosaurs in there. <laughs> just have that bit. Yeah, it's really nice. <laughs> Do we know? Um, without intending this to be a casting of aspersions, um, do we know uh, who has been advising Ellie Kish um, to reconstruct them this way? I mean, I always assumed it was Russell, but you know what paleontologists are like. You ask them about this, and it's sort of like um, a murder. You know, they, they, they don't want to besmirch any uh, any colleagues. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, I, I always assumed it was Russell who, who directed her like this, but I, I don't know for sure. Um, so I don't want yeah, to but sure. Dale, Dale Russell was a bit of a character, wasn't he? He was a bit, but <laughs> he was a great paleontologist. Um, and this book is it's, the book is marvelous. Um, I must say. I just wonder if we might end on perhaps my most favorite illustration of this set, um, and one that is, I think, unequivocally celebratory. Um, and that's the one of the uh, Pleurocelis. Yeah, that is a good one. I mean, perhaps by virtue of their being distant uh, in the background, we can't see them as uh, severely shrink-wrapped as all the others, and, and maybe that's uh, to their benefit. Um, they actually look pretty healthy. Um, but uh, apart from that, mm. just just this, the, the, the scene that is being evoked here, and, and I absolutely adore this composition with the horizon far up in the top uh, quarter uh, of the picture and your eye being led in by this trail of uh, beach detritus and, and the footprints uh, that go along uh, the shoreline. Really, it's, it's an encapsulation of the best things about Kish's work, this one. I think part of what makes it so brilliant is that it's almost a human eye view. So you can imagine yourself standing here and looking up, as you say, following the footprints around the shoreline. And then you see the dinosaurs off in the distance, just milling around one of them swimming. So right. this is, as you say, perfect encapsulation of it, because this is really taking you to that period of that scene. And you can really imagine just standing there on that beach and watching those animals in the distance. Yeah, the washed up detritus is such an inspired choice. Beautiful. It really is. Yeah, that um, shoreline, that uh, tide mark, sort of the tide line. Um, with all the shells and the bits and pieces, twigs and <laughs> we've all seen that. But when do we see when do we see a reconstruction of that, especially in a dinosaur scene? It's genius, right? Mm. Exactly. Hardly ever. Yes. Uh, well, uh, thank you, because I do think that I have a, a better understanding of what's good about about her work. I will give all these scans uh, a, a, a better look, having gained a new understanding of the appeal of Kish's work. So thank you for that. Thank you for allowing us to, to make our case. <laughs> now, uh, our guest this month was once playfully described to the effect of having emerged out of nowhere before establishing himself as a firm favourite almost instantaneously. Uh, Jed Taylor is perhaps most fondly remembered for his dromaeosaurs, his penchant for which has even found acknowledgement through the creation of his own dromaeosaur obsession hashtag on social media. In addition to his two-dimensional work, Jed has branched out into sculpting in a style that very much mirrors his illustrations. He has also given a talk about his work at the Tetrapod Zoology Conference, at which, along with the Chasmosaurs team, he is a regular attendee. Jed, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. It is an absolute pleasure. One of my favorite podcasts and some of my favorite to talk to. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so, Jed, uh, the first thing that we usually ask of our guest is how their love of paleontology came to be. In your instance, though, am I right in assuming that it's simply an extension of your interest in zoology in general, rather than, say, something through a popular media property? Which popular media property would you mean? Sorry. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> mm. I mean, to be fair... I wonder if you could guess. That's, that's not irrelevant, actually, um, that, that popular popular media property. Um, I suppose I've, I've always been, since I was, before I can remember, I've been interested in animals and dinosaurs. Um, I was actually, when I was two, given a, a soft toy of a Rampharynchus by my grandma, um, and I've still got him. You know, it, it's just always been there, that kind of interest in, in both animals and dinosaurs. I didn't particularly discriminate when I was a child. I was just interested in both. Uh, and then Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park came out when I was, you know, in school, in, uh, in primary school. And my dad took me to see that, took me out of school early to go and see Jurassic Park. So by that point, I was already very much into dinosaurs, but I'm pretty sure that Jurassic Park yeah. and the prevalence of it in, in you know, toys and magazines and all of the sort of media that existed at that time, I'm sure that solidified my uh, obsession, I would say, at the time. I think, I think you and I are quite similar in that respect, in that I was really getting into dinosaurs um, slightly before Jurassic Park came out and then it just really solidified everything and intensified it. Um, but mostly I wanted to ask where on earth your yeah. um, nan mm. got a soft toy of Ramphorinkus from. <laughs> I mean, uh, that is a good was, question. Was, was yeah. Rebecca Groom in her TARDIS who, um, you know, went back in time. Yeah, I've, uh, <laughs> I've, looked, I've looked it up. It's by a company, I think, called the Manhattan Toy Company. And it was, uh, they were released in 1984. Wow. And, is not wow. very scientifically accurate, but, um, but it's about it's about life size and, and it's uh, a software Ramphorinkus. Sort of green velveteen sort of uh, yeah no he's he's called Ramphor he's uh, he's still sat up on top of the cupboard in the bedroom he's looking a little bit tired but aren't we all we can all relate um, <laughs> we certainly can interestingly I would just a little add a little end bit onto the uh, the Jurassic Park connection I. I was, I, I studied, I went to university and studied um, animal biology and I was sort of started doing artwork of extant animals and it was when Jurassic World came out and all of the sort of discussion around that um, that kind of got me interested in dinosaurs again. Right. So it really is, you can, you can thank uh, Trevorrow and et al. <laughs> I mean, that's especially fascinating because, of course, um, Jurassic World is about as aesthetically removed from your work as it's possible to get. Like um... Exactly. Yeah, no, I don't. I didn't even watch the film for quite a while. I was more just inspired by the general kind of chatter. I suppose at the time I'd spent quite a few years not paying attention to developments in dinosaur science. So it was a bit of like... It was a it was an opportunity to really delve into the up to date reconstructions, and it was from there that I discovered things like uh, you know tetrapod zoology blog and yeah chasmosaurs and things. So it really just made you think 
dinosaurs are big again. What's new in the world of dinosaur science? And then you looked it up and realised there was a lot new. Yeah, I think I was having a discussion with a, a, a colleague where I was working and and I was saying I'm, I think the dinosaurs are supposed to have feathers on. That's That was always what they were saying before, but, like, who knows? And he was saying, oh, you know, he asked about it. So I looked it up and... Um, yeah, just went from there. And I started, I think I probably started drawing some things then. I never did anything. I know I didn't put anything on the internet at that point, And I probably didn't really. I think I brought a couple pictures to TetsuCon, but they would have been really the first things that I'd drawn since I was about 12. Well, well Jed, that, that leads us um, very neatly into our next question then, because... Um, for those of us who were privileged uh, to have seen your earlier work before, let us call it your emergence into fame, as it were, uh, your style seems to have undergone what I would describe as a sea change in a very short time. Uh, fortuitously, you even posted an image recently on Instagram, which illustrates this. Um, among the most distinctive aspects of your work, which I love, is how it resembles woodblock prints, particularly in the layering of the separate flat planes of tone or colour. So how did you arrive at this style? What was it that prompted the change towards this direction? I hope that this is encouraging to people listening who might be artists, but it is, I suppose, a process of three things. One, I was learning about the anatomy of the animals and and sort of from a position of not really knowing anything and jumping in sort of quite deep into that. Two, I was learning how to draw again because I'd always drawn in in biro normally when I was at work. Yeah. Like I spent years just sort of, I've got endless, endless sort of pages of, scribbles um but i hadn't really put any proper thought into it so it was really the process of actually learning how to use the pencil and the, the watercolor paints uh and then the third thing was then when i started doing digital work was that I, again I, I just keep doing things i really don't know what i'm doing i think is the answer yeah like, so it, it has the appearance of a very steep learning curve because if you go from i genuinely don't know how this works and then you do it you know enough to get some form of a handle on what you're doing it, it just I suppose you're sort of seeing the the genesis of these things really like it, it wasn't planned basically yeah. is what I'm saying like the differing styles and the differing techniques I've been in very much an experimental sort of headspace over the last few years because up until then the only art that I'd done up until I'd say about 2017, the only art that I'd done and put any thought into were pencil and watercolor pictures of uh, living animals that I would draw from my own photo reference that I'd taken at zoos and places like that. Yeah. Um, so I really had no, in terms of building an animal from scratch, I really didn't know. So I suppose partly what you're seeing is that the layering is a combination of trying to figure out how to use the software slash the the you know whatever artistic tools I'm using and also trying to figure out how the animals work I don't know if that's a 
succinct and helpful answer but no it is it, it, it comes from not knowing what you're doing is what i'm saying it comes from it comes from swinging <laughs> swinging out your reach <laughs> and and attempting to do One things was, it was about i was going to mention how the artistic style and your approach to reconstruction have evolved almost in parallel so um obviously i saw your very earliest um attempts at Sorry, I say attempts like I'm being derisory. I don't mean like that. But, you know, your earliest um, <laughs> reconstructions of prehistoric animals, because I mean, you took them along to Tetsuko and we looked at them in the pub. Um, and then the sea change yeah. from that to a few years later, you, you produced these dromaeosaurs. And I couldn't believe it was from the same artist. But in any case, just the, the progression um, it seems to run in parallel with the progression in style to becoming more, what do you say, more layered. I guess you were thinking more about how the animals were built as living beings and all the different layers that would be applied to the skeleton from the musculature to the skin and then in your case obviously you're applying a healthy dose of um, plumage on top of that especially well for your dromaeosaurs of course and your dromaeosaurs are always your first love so uh, <laughs> i think it's i think it's fair to say yeah it was a uh, in in 2017 those dromaeosaur pictures that you're talking about they were they were definitely i'd in the time in between drawing those initial ones that I took to Tetsukan and then putting my first things on the internet in 2017, I'd been drawing, but I hadn't been finishing a lot of drawings. So I'd been building up the understanding of how you make a drawing without ever actually really finishing anything, uh, which I think is an indication of I was just in a learning stage. I was just teaching myself um, how to do that. And then those dromaeosaurs specifically came about because of the dinosaurs of china um exhibition in at woolerton hall um and the reason specifically was is because they had all these these fossils of uh you know beautiful feather preservation of, of various things micro raptor etc but then also in the other room you've got all the, the bird taxidermy galleries um of all all sorts of birds so just by coincidence my photographs had everywhere i go i tend to take loads of photographs of everything just in case i want to draw it at some later date so the photograph folder that i had for that trip was full of fossils and skeletal mounts but also bird taxidermies. so i just had loads of photo reference of feather textures and things like that and I just thought, well, why don't I try and do what I normally do with the birds, which is, uh, you know, use the reference to, to get as much detail as, as, as I feel I need, um, but apply that to one of these feathered dinosaurs, which I had obviously been drawing before. I just never, I don't know, just you learn how to be an artist, I suppose, uh, by, by doing it. <laughs> Another thing I want to talk about was, because obviously you mentioned your background being illustrating living animals. And I have noticed that um, wildlife artists in particular have a real knack, even if they're not that familiar with the with extinct animals or dinosaurs or the, or the subject matter that they're illustrating, they do have this real knack for making them look really, really convincing as living beings. Um, like you can really tell in some of these old kids dinosaur books that we, that we review on the blog, when an artist is not necessarily a dinosaur specialist, but um, a wildlife illustrator. So I think, that background must have helped you to in making that and the way you're able to draw the uh, the parallels between the obviously living birds and dromaeosaurs without transplanting one onto the other like in a very literal way. You but you, you manage to draw them together and then combine that with your existing skills as a um, 
of wildlife artists or animal artists to make these things look as naturalistic as possible. And definitely, I'd say it is that naturalistic element that has really impressed people, like um, like Andrea Cow, who I've mentioned about a million times in the past, like a few months it seems. <laughs> but he's really hard to please. And I just remember him pointing to that illustration of yours and saying, "These are animals. These look like animals." Um, they and they had. I think what impressed him the most was that you'd shed all of the kind of pop culture preconceptions about them so you weren't operating under the influence and i'm sure you've got your paleo art influences and we should definitely talk about that but you shed any kind of preconceived notions about them or so it seemed um so you and it was a, like a ground up naturalistic approach to the reconstruction i mean um that's that's a, yeah. I mean, that's very nice of you to say. That was also very nice of Andrea to say, and unbelievable at that point. I mean, that, that those were the first images of paleo art that I put on the internet, and for them to get that kind of response was obviously lovely. Um, and definitely, if I suspect if that hadn't happened, I might not have felt the the drive to to continue um and a bunch of other people as well you know darren and, and others who were just very supportive right from right from seeing those images so that made me think well that's that's something that people like maybe i'll maybe i'll keep doing that and you know often i think as artists we're driven by passion but if you it's very easy to run out of your own passion and it's quite helpful if you can transplant other people's passion in and say oh well they seem to be enjoying it and getting something out of it and then and then it sort of pushes you on to create more i think yeah and you couldn't get a better imprimatur for your right. early work than andrea cow exactly. <laughs> exactly there are paleo artists who have influenced you and i know because you shared your uh, childhood ellie kish um with us earlier on but uh, maybe we can put that in the show notes uh, <laughs> if you let us but um what i mean what i was struck with because when i saw those first dreaming stores along with their, you know everyone else i was struck with how fresh it seemed and i mean i know there are others who are taking a similar approach like obviously emily willoughby and uh, john conway's tried to do something similar but there's still there's still something unique about yours which it didn't really remind me of anyone else's style which i think is why it gains they gain so much traction um, of course, they famously got dismissed in one case as uh, birds with snouts. But um, <laughs> but so although you've got this very um, unique style, uh, how how do you how do you say that the um, the influences of certain paleo artists are making their way into your work? I mean, they I must mean, be in some places. Are, are there certain people that you're thinking it's, of? It's a tricky one, I suppose. Um, definitely, when I was when I was younger, all of my the people I liked were people like Kish and Sibic and the, the sorts of people that were in the books that I would have had when I was a child. Um, and I then like, really had just a, a gap in my knowledge in between then and, you know, within the last 10 years. So then when I got back into it, I was, I was, I was very interested in people like Emily Willoughby and John Conway and all of, all of those people. But I suppose I, it's difficult. Everything's an influence, but I don't know that I have any of that as a conscious influence when I'm making pictures. Mm, that makes sense. Or sculptures. Or in, I don't. Is this is going to be a very unhelpful uh, answer? I think. But um, I used to make music, and when I made music, I would always. 
I always would the normal thing to do, and I think I don't. I think everyone who makes music probably is doing this. Is you look at what everyone else is doing, and you think, what do you like? Now let's do something that captures the bits of that I like, but without doing the same music as somebody else. And I think that is really just the ethos that I had. Like, there's a load of things I like. I very much like Emily Willoughby's Dromaeosaurs, um, as everyone does, I presume. But um, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't feel driven to make art if the drive was to make art that was the same as that. So the drive has to be, well, I think there's something I can do, which is also good, but isn't the same thing as what that person is doing. So it's more, uh, it's like a negative influence, not as in a bad influence, but it's uh, it's an influence in negative because I'm more looking at what exists and thinking, it, I suppose it's, it's, it's calculated to a degree, the fact that it comes across as being different. I am aiming for it to be different. Um, my interest is in doing things that complement what currently exists without attempting to replicate it, I suppose. I think that's one of the best answers we've had. It, it's a very good answer. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose because nobody tells you how to do this stuff, right? And I think now there are better resources available for, you know, you've got people like uh, Mark Witten's books and, and, and Brian Eng's constant posting of like videos of work in progress and stuff like that. You, and people like Joshua who just, you know, churning out uh, artwork every weekend on a, on a live stream, like no, inexhaustible machine. Joshua is inhuman. I've decided. Yeah. And you can watch them doing it as well. Right. So, and a few years ago, that was just less common, I think. Yeah. So if I wanted to figure out how to do something, I just, just had to try it, fail at it and then attempt to do it a bunch more times. And then after doing it a bunch of times, you realize, oh, hold on, there's a really simple and efficient way of doing this. If I'd known it at the beginning, I would have saved myself six months or whatever. Um, but that is just the nature of the thing, I suppose. It's fantastic. I, I think, well, yeah. really, um, what I don't know if this is specifically following on from what we're saying there, but I basically I've spent like a lot of my life around living animals of various kinds like I my university I, I trained to be like a zookeeper and I did a lot of work in zoos and in like conservation work and stuff like that so I've had and I've had a lot of pets like fairly sort of exotic reptiles and stuff and I sort of feel like what my skill is more than any specific artistic skill is telling when something does or doesn't look like a real animal. And I think the sort of paleo art I used to love when I was a kid always looked to me like a real animal, like that fish stuff. Yeah. It, it, it looks like animals, like obviously for all of the, the, the sort of the differences in how we'd reconstruct those animals now, they look alive. They look like they're, they have weight to them and they look like they're lit by the, you know, the real world. This is precisely um, what we talked about in I our discussion. That, yeah. Funnily yeah. enough, <laughs> this is what we were saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think that cause feathered dromaeosaurs, for example, when, when I was a child in the, in the nineties, 
in the, let's say in the early 90s, there would always be a, a feathered dromaeosaur in the dinosaur book, but it would just look so unlike a real animal, like so completely weird and not like anything real that I would just sort of dismiss it out of hand as like, I don't like that. That's that's not one of the ones I like. Um, and so I suppose part of my aim is just making things that I think look like animals, things that I think, yeah, that looks like it could be alive. And that's like my cutoff point, really, when I think it looks like it's something that could be alive. And you can do that with detail or without, you know, like you can capture gestures and, and, and uh, you know, sort of the eyes are obviously very important and sort of movement, things like that. You can capture that either very simply or or with loads of detail. But I think what I'm mostly interested in is does this sell animal to me? Like, does this look like animal? On the subject of zookeeping then, uh, Jed, um, I'd like to ask you, I'm sure Mark would also, uh, about your Dromeosaur Sanctuary project. Yes. So can you tell us well everything you can about it? I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a vague project, but it's illustrations of that I've been doing for a few years now of a Dromeosaur Sanctuary. So the idea being it's, you know, like a zoo, but more based around the sorts of places you might go to in the UK that are like bird of prey sanctuaries and stuff like that. So a little bit less big budget than your Jurassic Park or Jurassic World. A bit more on like a domestic if scale. If I can butt in, sorry for a second, it really reminded me of the British Wildlife Centre, which is... Um not that far from here in the southeast um <laughs> that is exactly yeah. what i had in mind yeah even your map looks similar to theirs <laughs> yeah that's intentional that it there's a there's a real aesthetic with those type of places and i've visited many many of them and there's a real like there's a set of kind of things that yeah like you say like the map but also the types of enclosures that that you see animals in where they're like you know, decent enclosures put together by people that know what they're doing, but maybe they're built out of just cheaper materials than you'd see at like a huge zoo or they're, you know, they're a bit older and yeah. they've been repurposed several there's times. There's no like, like elaborate theming. Those, those kind of things. You don't see like a, an enclosure themed around a temple or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Often run by like, a you know, a, it's a sort of a family business almost, like, or run by like a kind of eccentric, individual who's like <laughs> social media presence or something you know like um yeah yeah so the idea was just to uh yeah illustrate that i think for me that grounds the dromaeosaurs in a reality that's different to seeing a you know maybe a photo real painting of an animal in, in its environment in the in the mesozoic that's one way of selling something that's like a real thing but another way yeah. might be to just talk about it in terms of the way that people talk about animals in real life now. So uh, the Dromaeosaur Sanctuary is really an attempt to kind of capture that. It made me feel excited when I thought about it. When I thought about, imagine if there was a place where you could just go and it costs like £6 to get in and you go around and you just mm -hmm. look at all the Dromaeosaurs. Then you go to the cafe, have like a toasty or whatever. <laughs> Sausage roll. And I just thought that would probably make 
other people excited if I find that to be a, an exciting thought. And that, that does seem to be what's happened. People really do pick it up. And like when I post yes. about it online, I tend to I tend to um, respond almost in character. Like I'll sort of I'll say we have these Deinonychus at the sanctuary, and if someone then asks a question about the Deinonychus, I will just respond to it as if I'm because I have answers for all the questions. Like I've got I've got a couple of zookeepers that I talk to uh, for specific advice <laughs> about like legal like regulations for transporting large animals and stuff. Like it's all it's all thought through to a preposterous degree. Um, and the idea would be to make a book of it that's kind of an illustrated book about the sanctuary. There's also a narrative element which I don't think anyone even knows, but I've uh, I've I've written a whole. There's a whole backstory that would be it would be visible in a kind of subtextual way. Uh, so it's quite complicated. I've definitely put too much thought into it to not complete it. So I'm 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 getting back on it now. I'm definitely. That sounds wonderful. Uh, you could create a guidebook. So um, straightforwardly saying, um, you know, our, our two Donronicus came to us in 2012. They were transferred from another sanctuary. Yeah, that would be that. That would be the plan. And the uh, I'll I'll tell you. So the part of the the backstory is that the sanctuary is funded by uh, an eccentric uh, like millionaire who used to live in the highlands of Scotland and he had a pair of Deinonychus and he always wanted to open a, a Dromius or a sanctuary. Um, and he started buying these new, these are these other ones. I'm not really addressing the question of where these animals have come from. That's not part of my, <laughs> that's not within my remit. Sure. And the idea is that he has donated his animal collection and all of his money to me to uh, run the world's best Dromius or sanctuary. And he has now <laughs> moved on to other things. He lives abroad now, uh, or something. <laughs> he has an island somewhere off the coast of Costa Rica, that kind of thing. Uh, more along the lines like he's, uh, yeah, we don't, we d we're not very open about the history of a lot of our animals, even though we, we do put on a face of being very responsible and, all safety procedures always being followed, but the uh, you know the slight mystery of the, the the missing benefactor. Yes. Funny enough, that does remind me of dinosaurs in the wild a bit. The fact that they were always emphasising how they followed the safety procedures and time travel rules, but at the same time you, mm -hmm. you had these hints of them being broken all over the place. Yeah, um, exactly. Which is a lot of fun. So yeah, I can the see that. The thing about not knowing where they come from, I suppose for me that's just not really part of my. I don't want to get into a whole thing. I don't want to be writing a fiction about time travel or about, you know, genetic engineering or anything. There's lots of other things that are about those. Things. My interest is more about there's just dromaeosaurs in this sanctuary. So I've I've done everything I can yeah. to sort of not really draw the eye in the direction of thinking, why have you got dromaeosaurs in a sanctuary? We've got when... Uh, yeah. When Dinio Bellata, is that what is, how you pronounce it? Um, the sort of largest dromaeosaur that was described, I want to say last year, but who knows, time isn't real anymore. Uh, we were going to have a couple of those coming in uh, to the sanctuary that were from an American uh, sort of roadside zoo place, which had been closed down <laughs> due to the uh, criminal activities of its, uh, of its founder. So like, 
you know, the little Tiger King reference. Nah, it was due to goddamn Carol Baskin. <laughs> well, I've actually, I don't, I, I'll, I'll say his name. I, I like to call him uh, Ray Jurassic. Uh, but yeah, sort of cowboy, uh-huh. cowboy-like figure who... Uh, Grown. Yeah. I like grounding the dinosaurs in a reality that is experienced by everyone on a day-to-day basis. I'm less interested in figuring out a specific fiction for why the dinosaurs are in the, the same world as us. Yeah, the, the, the more subtle satire of um, our current relationship with animals is welcome, as opposed to um, the Jurassic World sledgehammer approach of um, they're sold to rich people. Exactly. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this nice, well-observed satire on um, animals in captivity and our relationship with them is is welcome definitely and as i said the fun of just there being dromaeosaurs because there are and it doesn't matter why they're there they just are because it, um, so, it would be nice right yeah it would be nice <laughs> yeah it would be nice yeah. indeed. so basically in designing the dromaeosaur sanctuary just as a part of the Ostroraptor sort of complex the enclosure large set of buildings that house the Ostroraptors, i've built a gallery into one of those buildings so the idea would be that visiting artists would come and stay at the sanctuary and they would uh, have an exhibition of their their dromaeosaur artwork from the sanctuary up in the in the gallery and my plan was always at some point I'll be able, yeah I, well I, I plan to be able to commission artwork from some of my favorite artists basically and then sort of weave that into the fiction so the idea would be that some of that stuff could feature in the in the book as well in the guidebook as a couple of the artists who visited i also thought it would be fun to just illustrate some visits so if you wanted to do a Casmosaurs team visit the Dromaeosaur Sanctuary Illustrated event. I would say 100% <laughs> up for something like that. That sounds amazing, Jed. <laughs> well, Jed, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Um, we would always be happy to welcome you back in future for whatever new developments you have to share. And we will as ever be keeping a close eye on your fixture in the paleosphere, which we are confident will be ever flourishing. Thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Jed. So thank you to the patrons and all the listeners for keeping this nonsense going. Um, it's all much appreciated, all the support. Thanks for all the kind words. Thanks to uh, really? all the guests thank who've you. been on. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, Louis Ray, Dave Hone. Maybe not so much Dave Hone, but the others. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And uh, do do keep it coming because we, we do love to read your comments. Um, leave your comments anywhere, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Leave them underneath the podcast show notes. Leave them on Podbean. Uh, we, we read everything and we, we do appreciate everything. Very much. Keep them clean, though. Oh, yeah. I think that all our, all our listeners are, are exemplary in that regard. <laughs> I completely trust our listeners to keep things perfectly clean and civil. You've just got to try and contain their excitement about David Norman. That's all. <laughs> Although, Mark, I have to say, you made it sound as though we were making our last episode just then. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. We're going to be doing this uh, until uh, until the end of time. Until I'm grey. And Niels is bald. Uh, oh, that's that's going to be next year. Don't don't low blow. <laughs> don't hang anything no, on that. No. Yeah, never mind. That's the end of that's the end of that. <laughs> um, 
it's all over until the next one thank you so much everyone thank you for listening see you later thank you bye-bye bye thank you for listening to love in the time of chasmosaurs you can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com you can find us on facebook at love in the time of chasmosaurs and on twitter at chasmosaurs If you want to give us your support, you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash L-I-T-C. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon. Pterosaurs.